Welcome to another edition of the Pipeline Podcast, the April 1st edition. Um, I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis, Jonathan Mayo, and Mike Rosenbaum. Guys, welcome. Um, we just, uh, well, I guess first of all, we, we, should be, uh, we should be starting the minor league baseball season. Um, we'd be coming up on opening day here. Um, obviously, no baseball to be played for quite a while. Um, we just, uh, over the past few days, had a pretty, uh, pretty fun, fun little thing that we did that uh, I thought we'd talk about. We came up with uh, something to, to fill the time here. And ended up, I think, being more enjoyable than than perhaps we even expected. But we basically did a draft where we took the draft pool was the top ten picks uh, from every draft in draft history, and the three of you uh, put together a team of uh, starting lineup, catcher, infield, outfit, three outfielders, and a left-handed pitcher and a right-handed pitcher. And you could only use each draft slot one through ten one time, uh, which ended up uh, resulting in some interesting strategy. Um, and uh, why don't why don't you guys uh, take it away here and talk about uh, how this how this panned out? I think there were what four, eight, ten, ten Hall of Famers taken overall. Um, and uh, four, seven, eight current players, and a, a, a ton of uh, additional stars. Yeah, I mean, I think I would agree with the assessment that it, it was actually a lot more fun than I expected it to be. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, this sounds like a good idea. And like everybody, we're looking for things to do and things to write about. And, uh, but it was it was it was a it was a fun exercise I thought just because of some of those rules that we had in place you know it wasn't just a straight up draft because uh, that <clears throat> would have been kind of silly but being limited by uh, you know both positionally and draft slot wise made it interesting and we all had different uh, ways of going about it you know I picked third so it, in some ways it made it easier to me for me you know Mike. Uh, just to go over the first couple of picks, you know, Mike took Barry Bonds, who I think was kind of the obvious guy to take number one. Not only was he just the number six overall pick, but his war was almost twice that of, of most other options. And and then Jim with the number two pick took A-Rod, uh, who was easily the best number one pick. One of the things that stood out to me about all of this is that how the number one picks really weren't, you know, I mean, I think we all knew this weren't quite as good as, you would think they would be. Uh, and then that for me picking third, I decided like, well, I was going to be the guy to go with uh, position scarcity. So I took Paul Molitor as my second baseman, knowing that there was a huge drop off the second baseman after that. So um, then he kind of went from there. Uh, you know, I don't know about you guys um, in terms of how you felt it, it, it went, uh, you know, with, with, how your drafts coming out, but I guess we, Jim, you can start because you kind of had a little bit of a, a different philosophy in how you went about drafting your team. Yeah, I, I guess I look at that as we're as we're trying to put together the best team possible, rather than say 
I'm not saying you guys did this, but rather than say just mathematically, how do I wind up with the most baseball reference war on my team? Because there are a number of players who are still active. And, you know, just for instance, like I valued Francisco Lindor very highly because, you know, he's only 25 years old. He's got, I'm not saying he's going to be better because, you know, Derek Jeter had a great career, but Francisco Lindor has more war through age 25 than say Derek Jeter did. And so I, I, you know, I kind of try to do some rough calculations as to what these guys might be. And that's how I kind of built the back half of my team. But, you know, it, it was interesting. Um, you know, speaking of bonds and, and A-Rod, and Mike can attest to this, I kept trying to trade for bonds before the draft began because on my system, I kind of looked at guys relative to their pick and relative to their position. And in my mind, bonds was as valuable as the next three best players in the draft <laughs> to, to me. So like, I, I really wanted bonds and couldn't get him. And like you said, I, I thought A-Rod was an obvious number two pick. And then I thought Kershaw, you know, especially given him more career value to come and based on, you know, the, the left-handed pitchers were, were scarcer than you'd think in this draft. I mean, there was quite a, quite a drop-off after Kershaw. So you starting your draft with Kershaw and then we had Paul Molitor qualifying at second base and he was, you know, by far the most accomplished second baseman on here. Um, you know, I, I thought the first four picks were the four obvious picks and then we all kind of went in different directions after that. Yeah, and once Jonathan selected Molitor and Kershaw, I feel like the the larger strategy came into play. It's like, okay, we're looking at position scarcity, um, and, and especially with you know second base and left-handed pitcher, those were the two biggest drop-offs of, of any position. Um, so that was pretty pretty saving drafting by Mayo, and I think it kind of forced us to reconsider, you know, in the next couple of rounds, which positions we were going to target and and you know which positions we would probably have to leave, you know, for, for later in the draft. Um, but no, I, I agree with Jim. I think that, that, you know, the, the big four that he just mentioned were the obvious ones to come off the board. And then after that, it was just, you know, who's going to become, be more, more creative with their picks and, and, you know, look at looking at other teams, which slots have been used and therefore trying to figure out how much leeway and how many more, you know, potential rounds you'd have to get the guy you want. Yeah. I, um, you know, it's been, it was pointed out to me and uh, then subsequently pointed out on Twitter that uh, I didn't need to take Griffey jr. Uh, when I did, because you guys had used your number one picks up with a rod and chipper. So I could have taken Griffey in the 10th round, but honestly, I've, I've, I've like played it through a few times I don't think that hurt me that much in the end. Um, you know, I probably would have done better on the on right-handed pitcher wise. Uh, I ended up taking Kevin Apier as my number nine uh, guy. Who, you know, that was one of the big surprises for me that he, he's, he accrued more war than any number nine pick uh, in history. So who knew about that? But um, I probably could have gone say with Zach Greinke, but then I wouldn't have gotten Derek Jeter. And there was a drop off in shortstops, uh, especially because Mike, you took Barry Larkin. So I'm actually okay. Like, yes, there was a misstep, but I don't think it really hurt me that much in the end. And uh, I realized, I did realize that I was locked in with Helton and Ventura as my corner infielders uh, for quite some time after you guys had picked up your, your third and first baseman. So I was pretty happy with that. Also, can we back up for a second here? And I don't think any of us realized that Jim was planning on taking the approach with, 
uh, with Javier Baez and Lindor, where like it's extrapolated career like war value rather than just like the the present uh, you know accumulated war. So there was some uh, adjustments that needed to be made along there, and I think. Well, it's not like we kept score. I mean, again, oh, we kept score, Jim. Oh, we kept well, score, please. The well, chart I mean, has, is- has has war listed. That's keeping score, Jim. I didn't change any rule. There were no rules, and that was just the Jason set up the chart. I, all I say is, when we're when all is said and done, let's. I mean, not that we will. If we go back and look at this at 10 years, <laughs> I think I'll have more war than you guys. That's all I was trying to do. And I mean, I'm sorry, a system, if, if somebody's going to try to tell me that Lonnie Smith is a better player than Francisco Lindor, I would laugh at that um, just because Lonnie Smith has more war as of today. Um, it, it's fine. I, everybody built their teams how they want to build their teams. Well, you definitely walked away with the youngest, sexiest middle infield. So. Well, we did, uh, we did put it up for a vote on Twitter. And, uh, interestingly, interestingly, yeah, Mike's team is, uh, is leading the way there. And Jim's is, yeah. uh, I won't say a distant, third, but nah, it's fine. But it's like, I don't understand how you would take Mike's team over Jonathan's team. If you're going on current war, I mean, and I'm, I'm sorry when you have Barry Zito, Lonnie Smith, Nick Markakis and Todd Walker on your team and Jonathan <laughs> at those positions has, Paul Molitor, Dale Murphy, Reggie Jackson, and Clayton Kershaw. No, that's not even close. They, like, that's what they're doing. They're they're seeing Bonds, Chipper, Verlander as his top three, and that's what they're basing it on. And that was my entire strategy. Your yeah. entire strategy was to take the last five rounds of the draft off. Well, it worked well. Yep, yep. Just you know, hope hope people don't read past you know my sixth round pick, and then you know, looking at that roster, just you know. It, it, it does show an understanding of the uh, of readers and attention spans on Twitter. So no, I was uh, I'll be the first to tell you. I think I even wrote in my blurb that like I'm I do not feel good about having to use my tenth round pick on my second baseman Todd Walker. You know, like, like was there anybody who had a lower WAR who was taken? No, no Todd Walker. Yeah. Anyway, regrettable. Um. I guess let me uh, let me. So the uh, the current players. Oh, I was go for it, Jason. I was just going to. Uh, I can come back to my question. Go for it, man. I was just going to rattle off the names of the the current players that were taken in this draft. Uh, Mike took Verlander in the third round, Buster Posey in the sixth round, Marcakis in the ninth round, uh, Jim with his uh, future war uh, friendly strategy had four current players, which is the same numbers Mike and Jim combined. He has Javi Baez, Ryan Braun, Francisco Lindor, and Zach Granke, who he took in the uh, sixth through ninth rounds, and and Jonathan took Clayton Kershaw in the second round. I also thought it was interesting that uh, despite position scarcity type of picks, that the 10 Hall of Famers that were taken in this draft were all taken uh, within the first five rounds, first half of the, of the draft. Hmm. That is interesting. I hadn't even realized that. We, we had a long streak from the top of, I think, the first – I was going to say, I think the first really 15 players in this draft are all slam dunk Hall of Famers or would be if there weren't steroid questions about Bonds and Rodriguez and McGuire. I, I think because Jeter will be in the Hall of Fame one day and Kershaw will be in the Hall of Fame one day. 
as well. So, I mean, if not for the, the, the steroid issue that affects some of these guys, I think the first 15 guys will all be, all would be Hall of Famers, which is interesting. And Francisco Lindor says he'll be in the Hall of Fame 20 years from now. So look out for him. Or still playing. You never know. Um, what I was going to ask is, at, at what point, or I guess with which which pick, um, specifically, I guess, one pick, did you make not only just based on value, but also to, you know, one-up the person who's going to be drafting behind you? you know, like l- looking at everyone else's rosters, when, when it became a point where we're like, okay, I need to block Jim or Jonathan from trying to get this guy at a position. I don't really try to block anybody so much as keep things open for players I wanted. I, I got in a bind when, when I, I should have taken, looking back, the one pick I would do over again, I would take Reggie Jackson over Robin Yount in the third round because Jonathan was picking behind me and had already taken Molliner and couldn't take Yount. And so I should take his, when he took Reggie Jackson, and I think you had taken Verlander the pick before that, that left me in a hole at number two because the best player by far was Will Clark, but I already had a first baseman. So in retrospect, I would have done that, but I never looked at it as, oh, I'm going to – I just find in any draft, whether it's you know for work or if you're in a fantasy league, if you start trying to screw up other people's teams with your picks, you, you just screw up your own pick. Well, not necessarily screw up, but when you're looking at – you know, there's only so many – you know viable catchers, uh, you know, it was like three good catchers or, or, or first baseman, even like to get to a point where you're almost overthinking it a little bit with, with the trying to block another person or, or thinking that, you know, if I don't grab this guy here, then he's not going to be there. Um, and for me, like one of those guys was McGuire, uh, Mark McGuire, when there were still, you know, I see Jonathan got, you know, Todd Helton, in the in, in, with his ninth round pick, um, Jim, you obviously had Frank Thomas. That's you know that's the best one. But realizing that uh, I don't know, maybe it was a bit of bit of an overdraft, thinking that I had to grab guys as as early as I did. But I also just blame that on Jonathan for starting it off with like grabbing Molitor and Kershaw and and really you know limiting the <laughs> the crop of available guys. It, Second, yeah, I know, I know. That, that definitely uh, changed change the strategy a bit for me going forward. Yeah, I, and to be honest with you, if, if I had been picking, say, second, um, you know, or if there had been a fourth person I was picking for, I, like, I don't know that I would have taken Molitor. It was just, you know, to me, Bob and A-Rod were the clear pick, and that, that set the stage for me to sort of just go in that direction. And, you know, I was looking at the first baseman because uh, there really aren't, you know, there aren't that many, like, great ones, but they're kind of lumped together. So what I tried to do was kind of look at each slot and then the difference, you know, either in that, both in that slot and at each position in the war. And yes, Frank Thomas was the best, but you know, Jim took Frank Thomas second in the second round and he has 73.8 war. And, and I got Todd Helton near the end. And it was only a difference of 12 war, which to me wasn't a wide enough disparity for me to feel like, Oh, I got to go get my first baseman and like jump and say, take McGuire. Um, and and so, I took Frank Thomas, know. Jonathan, where I did, cause you took Kershaw and I didn't want to get stuck with the third pick in the seventh round. Like, you know, Frank Thomas was a seventh rounder. And if you don't take Frank Thomas, the, the next best player I had in the seventh round actually was 
I actually looked over Mike Miner if you're using my future projection system. But if you don't use Mike Miner, the next best player in the seventh round was Nick Markakis. So I, I, I wasn't so much worried about blocking you guys as, hey, if, if the seven, like as soon as you guys picked around looking like, hey, is there a viable third choice or do I need to jump on the second choice there? Right. Yeah. I think it was more of a, what do they have? What do you guys have left? Like which slots haven't you gotten in which positions? And the the one thing that threw me, yeah, the one thing that threw me a little bit with you, Jim, is that you had some guys with some positional flexibility. So, you know, for a little while, I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm locked in uh, on Derek Jeter. And then, you know, I was actually talking to Jason about it. He's like, well, not necessarily. Cause even though you took a rod, you could move a rod to third, you could move Robin Yount to the outfield. And, uh, and then you came to me with that idea for the trade and that allowed me to get Jeter and it allowed you to get the guys that you wanted. So uh, it, that was kind of a, a, a win-win when, you know, when it came to sort of figuring, sorting that, that part out. But that was the only time that I thought I was like, oh, I'm locked in uh, and uh, was glad to realize that I wasn't. And then you at, offered the trade. I'm like, well, it worked out anyway. Yeah, because I was, I, was, I was torn because you picking twice – I wanted, like, I, after I made my, my Reggie Jackson mistake and I realized, oh, I'm getting boxed in at, at the number two pick and I'm going to wind up with Greg Swindell in the 10th round, who actually had 30 war, so it wasn't awful. But um, I started trying to pair up positions where I could flip back and forth. And I had Winfield and Greinke in the fourth and sixth round. And in case that didn't come together, I think I could have gone Kevin Brown and Gary Sheffield, which was similar, but like, eight fewer war I think when I was lining those guys up but I was I was torn because I wanted to take Winfield who I think Jason had just mentioned in a slack message because I think he'd been quality he'd been listed as right in pitcher I was like damn it don't bring up Dave Winfield right now but I was afraid if I picked up if I picked Winfield that you could go grinky and then all of a sudden like the other options in the sixth round for right handed, it would it would have blown up my draft. So that's why I came to you, and and I actually would have been fine even if you had taken <laughs> with my pick Winfield or Granky, knowing that I wasn't going to get stuck was more valuable to me. And then when you took Jeter, it, it worked out for both of us. And then by, I was just going to say real quick: by the second half of the draft, everybody started to get kind of locked into what position or what slot you had to take, and that's why I wound up taking Baez in the sixth round. Because not that you guys were necessarily doing the same future strategy I was doing, but my last four picks at that point, neither of you guys was going to take, you guys couldn't take Swindell in the second round anyway. Neither of you guys could take Greinke. Neither of you guys were going to take Lindor in the eighth round anyway. In the fifth round, I think Ryan Braun and Dale Murphy and JD Drew all had basically the same value. So I was, I wasn't, you know, it, it was weird. Like after, really after we made that trade, it was like, okay, I'll take Javier Baez. And then the rest of my draft, I, I knew. And I think I got interested in, in the second half of the draft, like the rounds, you know, six through 10, like looking at it now, like we all had a lot of the same draft slots remaining, you know, number eight, um, number five, uh, um, there was one other one, but I not see in it here, or at least like, now, or at least like two, two of three of us, you know, still had that spot remaining. So I think there became a, a, a race to grab, uh, you know, guys in those slots where you also needed a position. So I think it was kind of just a became a bit of a free for all at, at a certain point there. And one other thing I wanted to point out is uh, what I feel like I missed out on and, and could have util, utilized more was like Jim and Jonathan. You guys both 
at least drafted at least one guy who had like multi-position eligibility, which, you know, gives you some flexibility for the rest of your roster, you know, um, being able to be creative with your picks. And, uh, you know, I think that was a wise strategy. Well, I wish I could take some credit for being creative in my drafting by taking Paul Molitor's positional flexibility, but there wasn't any point in time where I was considering him anything but being my second baseman. That's where his value really was. Not that he wouldn't be a highly ranked war guy at third. It's just that the disparity among second baseman was so vast. That's why I took him there, but I'll take credit. Anyway, it was good stuff. Mike, thank you for joining us on this week's podcast to talk about it. But I know, Jason, we have a lot of other topics to cover. We do. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And just one more thing on that topic. Uh, we have discussed, well, first of all, all the, the results, complete results are up on MLBpipeline.com. Uh, we also tweeted out each of these guys' uh, teams that they assembled. And you can check out the uh, MLB Pipeline Twitter feed and vote on which uh, which guy selected the best team. And we've also talked about doing the same sort of thing in a different sort of variation where each guy's given uh, a draft pool. And we talked about maybe doing like the average of last year's uh, draft pools, which was $8.8 million approximately. And then they'd go through and uh, select players, build a team and then and pay uh, out of that $8.8 million pay players uh, actual signing bonuses. So some logistics to be worked out there, but uh, keep an eye out. We're planning on doing some more of this kind of thing. Uh, so last week uh, we talked about the best catching prospects for each team over the past 20 years. Uh, our major league uh, team beat writers are putting together a list of each team's five best players uh, per position week by week. This week, they're looking at the best first baseman in team history. Uh, so we are looking at the best first base prospects uh, of the past 20 years. And uh, guys, I think it's fair to say that this uh, list of first baseman, the best first baseman in team history, uh, is a little more impressive than the catcher's list. There are 12 Hall of Famers and, uh, and at least one future Hall of Famer, probably more. Uh, versus 10 when we looked at the catchers last week. Um, some, and uh, I think on the low end, there were fewer sort of low-end players than on the catchers list. There are two players that are on both lists, um, both the all-time best for each team and on our list of uh, top prospects, those two being Freddie Freeman and Ryan Howard. Yeah, and both of them are my guys, so that, that was an easy thing to write. Uh, but it, it is interesting to look to see – and obviously, you know, the our beat writers have the benefit of looking over, you know, throughout all of history, um, you know, while we're looking at sort of this, you know, the MLB.com era, this century. Uh, so it does limit uh, who we're able to pick somewhat. Um, but I was a little surprised to not have there be more crossover. Jim, I don't know if that was something that you, you were surprised at or, you know, just the fact that first base prospects, you know, are, are a little bit, a little bit weak. Um, yeah. And it may be that the, the big leaguers are so strong because, you know, unlike catcher where you're factoring defense in and by the nature of the position, the guys are shorter careers. You know, there's a, you know, like you said, there's more Hall of Famers and there's also near Hall of Famers. And even the guys who aren't going to make, like, like Will Clark's probably not going to make the Hall of Fame. Adrian Gonzalez probably is going to make the Hall of Fame. 
they've had really, really good careers. Um, like, so the, the, the bar I think was higher. Um, you know, I, I, the thing that interested me doing this was one, like, it seems like maybe I was thinking from along the lines, Jonathan, and from having done the catchers list last week, but when we're doing the current list and we always have a, a concurrent top 10 first base list, we usually have to go most years off the top 100 list to come up with extra first baseman. So I figured, oh, we might be scuffling at some of these positions to find, you know, who, like, like there'll be an obvious guy who was the best prospect. Like, like next week, I think we really will scuffle at second. But I had on most of my teams multiple candidates, not that they all panned out, but multiple candidates uh, to pick. So there, there actually have been a lot of highly rated first base prospects during the MLB.com era. But I guess the overlap, it, it makes sense just because, I mean, you know, like you're not going to have a guy, you know, like so many of these guys, I, I didn't count this up, but so many of the guys are, are, are well, well, well before the MLB.com era in terms of the all-time guys that, that you just weren't going to have that overlap. Well, it's also, and maybe it's just the nature, you know, and obviously a lot of times this stuff is cyclical, but I I felt like the last year to like the the pool of first base prospects hasn't been great. Uh, you know, when we do our, like our top ten by position, and and I think if I am going through this correctly, we only have two current prospects on our list, and one is Brendan McKay, and you know he's really thought of more as a left-handed pitcher now. I know he still does both, but still, and then Evan White. Who's the, the you know the the Mariners' choice for, for well, Andrew Vaughn too? You got Andrew Vaughn. Oh, Andrew Vaughn. You know, I, I keep forgetting because he's you know he's, he's not really gotten started yet. But yes, thank you. So three, so three out of thirty are guys who are currently still sort of prospects. Um, and I you know I would think that uh, there would be more than that, but just there there isn't the depth at that position right now. Yeah, well, and it's interesting you bring that up too because it was. What was it? I think two years ago, 2017 looked like okay. Here's this 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 really strong first base draft. You know, Brendan McKay, you know, who's become more of a left-handed pitcher. I mean, he's still going to probably two way, but right now it looks like he's going to be more of a pitcher. Paven Smith, even though he turned it on toward the end of last season, has been a you know disappointment. Nick Prado has been a disappointment. Evan White's on this list, but that looked like okay. Here's this draft that's going to you know stock us with, with with first base prospects for the next couple of years. And they've been largely disappointing to this point. Of all the players that are on our list uh, of top prospects uh, for each team over the past 20 years, the two that appear have a shot at potentially becoming their team's best ever at that position, I would say would be uh, Cody Bellinger. uh, and, And, you know, he's got Gil Hodges to overcome. Uh, who's certainly no slouch, uh, but the way that uh, Bellinger's trajectory uh, has been over the past few years, you certainly see that happening. And then uh, Mariners' all-time best first baseman uh, was selected to be Alvin Davis, and you know Evan White obviously hasn't even really begun his major league career, but you could see him potentially uh, becoming. Uh, better than Alvin Davis. I think the Gil Hodges for Hall of Fame people are going to come after you, Jason, after saying that. Just, uh, but I think I think I think both are fair. And you know, Alvin Davis had a good career. You know, twenty WAR. Um, I think you know, 
if, if Evan White is is better than that, then everyone will be very very happy. I think it's certainly doable. Um, but uh, I think Alvin Davis was sort of sneaky good. Um, you know, when, when we were you're just sucking up to Harold him. Reynolds, Jonathan. I think I think you're just yeah. Harold Reynolds That's listening it. to this. You're trying to get in his good graces. I, I am. You know, he was. Uh, you know, he. The interesting thing with Alvin Davis, not that I want to go down that rabbit hole, is you know, it's one of these guys that had you know probably his best year was his rookie year. So everything after that kind of paled in comparison. Um, but he had some, you know, he had some good years. You know, he was a solid player, not spectacular. I think it's it certainly is a doable thing, you know, for Evan White to uh, to overtake overtake him. I'm not I'm not 100 sold on the Bellinger over Gil Hodges thing, but maybe that's just the uh, I'm thinking of my my parents who were you know grew up in New York, and my dad was a big Brooklyn Dodgers fan, and and uh, people of that era loved Gil Hodges. So. I'll back you on that one, Jason. I think we're just saying he has a chance. So I think it's fair to say that Cody Bellinger has a chance. And and Gil Hodges, good player, not taken away from that. I think he's also romanticized. And Cody Bellinger is a very, very good player. And, and you know, the thing to remember about Cody Bellinger, he's only 24 this year. I mean, he's, he's just getting started. And he's already had three pretty good years. So – I, I'll, I'll, I'll have your back on that one, Jason, that I, I think I think Cody Bellinger, we're not saying he definitely will, but I think he will. I mean, he's already got 111 homers. I'm doing some quick math here. I mean, Gil Hodges was, was 27 when he had 111 home runs in his career. So I, I, I'll support you on that one, Jason. I have your back. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, I mean, Bellinger, three, three full seasons, two All-Stars, an MVP, Gold Glove, Rookie of the Year. Um, Hodges was an eight-time All-Star, um, did win two World Series, uh, three gold gloves. But, yeah, uh, that's a fun one to uh, kind of project out. Uh, another thing that I think is interesting in looking at these lists is when we put ours together is when you get a guy like uh, Yonder Alonso, who's going to be the first baseman on our for, for the Reds, or, or Dom Smith, who – we're going to say is the most highly touted Mets first base prospect over the past 20 years. And it feels a little funny to say, knowing what Pete Alonso did last year and knowing what Joey Votto became, but uh, we're, we're trying not to revise history here and trying to take a, an accurate look back at just how hyped these prospects were um, before they became what they became. Yeah, no, and I think that's what's, that's what makes it fun is because you forget some of this stuff until you go back and look. And I mean, it's funny. A year ago, we had people again. I wouldn't say Twitter's the best uh, the best source of uh, intelligence, but we had people, you know, knocking us on Twitter for having Pete Alonso in the middle of our top 100 prospects list. Oh, he can't play defense. You know, he strikes out too much. Is that really going to work in the big leagues? Um, and, and Dom Smith, even though he's not going to be the player, I don't think the Pete Alonso is, was more highly touted. And it's, it's funny looking back at these uh, because on a lot of these, I, like I had multiple, like it was interesting. Like I had Adrian Gonzalez was in two of my organizations, but you know, and you think, okay, Adrian Gonzalez, he was number one overall pick in the draft, but, but no, Adrian Gonzalez was not more highly regarded than Mark Teixeira in Texas. Um, and he wasn't, you know, it seems weird. But Jason Stokes, who was the second round pick that year when Adrian Gonzalez was kind of a surprise number one overall pick, was actually more highly regarded at his peak in the Marlins system than Adrian Gonzalez was. Um, 
you know, and it's interesting. I know, Jason, you were you were surprised to see Hesop Choi, like as people forget about Hesop Choi, but Hesop Choi was like super highly regarded, more so than Anthony Rizzo. When Anthony Rizzo was in the Cubs system, he was coming off a disappointing big league debut with the Padres. So he Choi was more regarded. And and I, I'm not gonna digress for too long. I, I am I, I think I was was it last week I was flabbergasted about the whole uh Jason Dominguez dropping to number two on our international list. Maybe that was two weeks ago. Look, I know character concerns. How how Cap Anson is on our Cubs list when he's got more career war combined than Anthony Rizzo and Mark Grace were both ahead of him. I, I don't understand that. Anthony Rizzo wasn't the Cubs' best first base prospect in our area. He was close, but he also was not the best first base first baseman in Cubs history. That's that's crazy talk. Next week, we are going to have Jordan Bastian go head to head with Jim on the podcast to explain that pick. Well, um, I just, I guess Jason Beck's not going to put Ty Cobb on our Tigers list because he was a bad guy. So, uh, well, I'm looking forward um, to that one. So, you know, you mentioned Yander Alonso, and he's interesting uh, and for a couple of reasons. You know, you talk about Joey Votto. That one was close because Votto was highly ranked. He went to the Futures game a few times. Uh, he was a well thought of prospect, but. In the end, we went with Alonzo. He was a top 10 draft pick. Uh, I think there were more expectations. And he's also on two lists. because He made both the Reds and the Padres list. Um, and that is the only player uh, that, we, that, that happened with. We'll have to see as we go on to other positions whether that happens again. Um, you mentioned Adrian Gonzalez, Jim, as a guy who was sort of on a couple of different places. Were there, were there other guys that kind of fit? Like, I, I, you know, I ended up with Carlos Pena, the A's, and he, he wasn't with the A's very much, but he was a top 10 prospect. Would, was he a guy that came into play for, I guess it would have been what, the, the Rangers. Rangers? Yeah, the Rangers had this. <laughs> the Rangers were crazy, Jonathan, because they had Justin, they had Mark Teixeira, Justin Smoke, Carlos Pena, Travis Hafner, and I'm, I, I don't think I'm forgetting him. Oh, and Adrian Gonzalez. They had all those guys. Um, and there just wasn't, you know, obviously we're only picking one. And, and I went with Teixeira. But but the Rangers really had five high-profile first basemen. Um, you know, Pena, like you said, made it for Oakland. Hafner made it for Cleveland. Adrian Gonzalez didn't make it, but, you know, was in consideration for Miami, which also had Logan Morrison. And, um, and Justin Smoke, you know – I. I'd have to go back and look. I almost wonder if Justin Smoke, I guess we went with Evan White, but Justin Smoke, I can't remember if he was still a prospect. Maybe he wasn't a prospect when he went to Seattle in the, in the Cliff Lee trade. Um, like it, it's all blurring together. But yeah, the Rangers were, were crazy deep with first base. And he wasn't. That, that's what it was. That's why he wasn't Seattle. But Justin Smoke would have wound up as Seattle had he still qualified as a prospect at that point. So next week we'll be uh, we'll be taking a look at uh, the top second base prospects in the past twenty years, and we'll continue around the horn into the outfield and with pitchers in the weeks to come. Uh, another series that we've uh, been running on MLB Pipeline, uh, Alexis Brodnicki has been uh, doing some features on scouts, and these have been great so far. Uh, I say these. The, uh, the first one ran last week. The second one is, is actually going up today. Is not actually uh, up on the site yet. Uh, 
Um, but it's, uh, it's a lot of fun too. Um, the first one was on Bo Hughes. And I know that the headline on that one was uh, the scout who trained Madonna, Hanks, De Niro, um, which was just one of several very interesting anecdotes uh, about, about Hughes. But he was also uh, on the team that uh, drafted Mike Trout. Um, and in these, we're kind of having the scouts identify the uh, the biggest standout, or best player that they ever saw, um, the biggest miss. Um, we'll also have them talk about some stuff that's kind of unique to scouts. Uh, their their go to road food as they're on the road all the time. Uh, get some advice for scouting or industry hopefuls. Um, these have been a lot of fun. Um, and the one that's uh, going to run today is on Ron Rizzi, who also has a kind of Hollywood tie in that he trained Charlie Sheen. He worked on uh, major league. So uh, that's another, uh, it's a common thread between these two, but he's got some really great stories. And Jim, I know you, uh, you referred to him in a conversation we had a couple days ago as a national treasure. Yeah, he is. Ron's one of my favorite people in baseball. He's not just a very good scout and he got a world series ring last year, but he, man, he, he thinks about all aspects of the game. You know, he's not, you know, he, you know, he, he, he's, I wouldn't say he's, he's totally in love with all of the analytics, but he understands their place in the game and, he, and he's learned them. He's a guy who did graduate school work. I think when he was in graduate school, he was using, back then the equipment was much more primitive, like film work of pitchers deliveries. And it, it's funny because I, I, I've seen the story before it went up on the site and he tells the, the Brian Taylor story, who we talked about on last week's podcast about, um, you know, when Jonathan and I were doing our all prospect teams and I said, he's, he, he's still like for me. And I think for a lot of scouts, the, the best left-hand pitcher they've ever seen. And, and, and Ron tells Alexis this, this tremendous uh, story where essentially I think it's one of the first players he ever scouted, like his first year as an area guy. And yeah, the first player he ever yeah, scouted. And he's like, puts a 72 on him. And the scouting director's like, whoa, whoa, like, you know, 2080 scale, 72 is crazy. What are you doing? You know, got to, got to put these guys in perspective. And yeah, I think he actually saw Scott Schoenweiss was his next guy. And Scott Schoenweiss was pretty good. But Brian Taylor made Scott Schoenweiss look like, well, I'm left handed. He made him look like me. Um, and, uh, and I've heard Ron tell this story about how it was just unbelievable. And like, and I do think if, you know, we talked about this a little last week, if you had, the modern radar guns with the way they measure velocity, I'll bet Brian Taylor was throwing like probably an easy hundred in high school with like very little effort in his delivery. I mean, he's just unbelievable, but I, I love that story. And, and, you know, I, I even emailed with Alexis a little bit and she said, I think she wound up talking to Ron. She might've been exaggerating, but might not that she wound up talking to him for like four hours. And, um, and I think that's possible, but Ron is like, that's one of the things I meant. I was going to probably bump into Ron when I went to Arizona for spring training and, and just sit down and you can have conversations about any number of topics in baseball and out. But uh, I've really enjoyed these, 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 these two pieces and, and looking forward to more. And, and again, they, they make me feel old because Bo Hughes, when I started baseball America was a college coach at Southern California. Um, so that's why I think of Bo Hughes. I think of him as an assistant coach on Mike Gillespie's staffs with the Trojans. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very good stuff. I, the thing that really stood out to me, uh, and, and people will see the, um, the Ron Rizzi one when it, when it goes up, they both had the same biggest miss. Um, and in this case, I guess the smallest miss, because it was Dustin Pedroia. 
um, you know, just in terms of them completely underestimating what he was going to be as a big league player uh, and, and how he would far exceed his tools and his size and things like that. But, uh, you know, every scout has th- that guy that they, you know, completely whiffed on or feel that they completely whiffed on in retrospect. And I thought it was interesting that they both picked Dustin Pedroia and they both had these Hollywood ties. The one thing I like, I would want to go back and ask because so Rizzi helped Charlie Sheen major, major league. I guess he needed help with the, with the pitching part of it. Cause he had filmed eight men out before major league where he was an outfielder. So I'm not exactly sure. Like I, maybe it was just mound help that he needed from Rizzi. My little Hollywood tidbit. Well, he did say uh, he said that he worked with Charlie Sheen, and he said actually he was eighty-two to eighty-three on the gun. Wow! It always looked like he knew, kind of knew what he was doing. Like he wanted, to, and he wanted to make sure that he looked like he knew what he was doing. Yeah, he, I, I think it was probably more that you know trying to make sure that he looked like he, you know, it looked like a decent pitcher. So. All right, so we're going to wrap up uh, this week's podcast with an interview that uh, you did, Jonathan, with Royce Lewis. Yeah, well, we, you know, we, we, we kind of kicked off this podcast talking about how we're trying to come up with uh, new ideas for content in, in the world we're currently in. And uh, I decided we're going to sort of do these semi-regular, hopefully weekly video chat you know, at home with kind of thing with prospects. And I figured, well, why not start with the guy who we generally consider to be one of the best talkers um, in, uh, in, in memory period. Um, so I had a chance to catch up with, with, with Royce. He uh, is living in Texas. Uh, he had kind of relocated to, to the Dallas area and he's living there now. And uh, I had a chance to, uh, to catch up with him for, for this uh, interview, which you can watch in video form uh, on MLB.com as well. Well, in today's day and age, you know, the, the best we can do is try to catch up with players when they're, they're at home. And uh, we're going to start with Twins top prospect, former number one overall pick, Royce Lewis. Royce, thank you for, for joining us. Uh, I know these are strange times indeed, uh, so we really appreciate the time. Oh, no, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So let's start out with uh, just how you got from, you know, so you're in Fort Myers for spring training and then things get shut down. When did you make the decision to head home, which is now for you in Texas, right? Yes, sir. Dallas. Yeah. And uh, it was a really crazy feeling and a crazy thing going on in the world at the time. And uh, we kind of got the news last minute. Uh, we literally got the news on a Friday night, uh, Saturday night, and I came back Sunday, Sunday night. Uh, so it was really just tough on, I think, the whole, you know, world's part as far as we don't know really what's going on, how we're going to handle the situation. And um, me personally, I think the MLB is doing a good job following the guidelines of CDC because this is, you know, a very serious thing. And, you uh, you know, we have a lot of gatherings, obviously, all these fans coming out and you don't want to get people getting sick, doing autographs or doing any of that. And um, it would just go around very easily. And I think we're doing a good job of that. 
All right. Well, that, that, it's good that you, you put that out there. I think uh, the more people who talk about how important it is to practice social distancing, and I don't know about you, but my hands are so dried out and cracked from washing them all the time <laughs> that, uh, that it's a little insane. But so yeah. have you been able to find any kind of routine at home? Like I know for me, like I'm having trouble knowing well, like what day is what and, you know, not necessarily setting an alarm because there's no, you know, I'm not taking my kids to school. Like what, how have you been able to find any semblance of, of a routine when for like a professional baseball player, like routine is kind of the thing. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, at the same time, we don't know what day is what usually anyways, unless it's a Sunday day game, you get that one day game. Oh, it must be Sunday. Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) But uh, no, at the same time uh, for me, routine is very easy. I, I wake up every morning and, and have breakfast and then kind of start my day from there, whether it's, you know, studying something about life that I can continue to build off of and learn or, or business for me, you know, I'm trying to get very educated and be smarter over on that side. And uh, so I can have a good life with my family. And, but yeah, other than that, just continue to eat. It's kind of like off season mode for me right now, Uh, just continuing to eat. And then I'm working out Monday, Wednesday, Friday, because I don't want to overlift at this moment because technically this would be during season. But at the right. same time, I want to be in, I want to be in shape. So uh, it's kind of one of those weird lingos for sure. How uh, how much time do you think you would need? Let's say they they set a time whenever it's going to be June fifteenth, July for what? How much time do you think you would need to be ready for play? I mean, because you were pro, you you know you were just about you know I would imagine like most players after a long spring training, kind of like all right, I'm ready to start playing games, and then it all comes to a halt. How much time do you think you would need to be ready to play in, in, in competition right now? Yeah, I think uh, a good little ramp up would be probably about two, two weeks and then to have another week of games, about five to ten games total, and then season starts. So almost a full month before season really starts. Okay, fair enough. I see that uh, you, like me, are uh, sporting a little bit of the, the quarantine face hair right there. Yeah, yeah, I got a lot of With the beard before. Yeah, no, I mean, I've been doing it lately. I'm just trying to grow it out. I, I heard that, you know, when you let it grow it out and then you keep shaving it, it'll continue to grow in. And so I'm still missing a little bit here and here, but we're working on it. And my main problem is that it's, it's coming in all white for me. So, <laughs> older, so I, don't, I don't know that I'm going to keep it, but uh, – that's neither here nor there. All right. So how else are you filling your time? You know, what, what are you doing uh, when, you know, when you're not working out? Obviously, we, we all have a, kind of a lot of time on our hands. What, what are you doing just to, to pass the time? Oh, a lot of Netflix for sure. And then uh, Fortnite. I don't know if anyone's heard about that game. but <laughs> No, uh, never heard of it. <laughs> Fortnite, uh, Madden, as well as MLB The Show. Uh, I got lucky enough to be in the game this year, so it's a pretty cool play with myself. Uh, not hitting really well in the average column right now, but <laughs> it's only three games in, so it's no big deal. You need the Fall League version of yourself just to make sure that the <laughs> – Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. That guy was good. Now, does the, does, the, does the version of you in the game have the big leg kick? It's got a mediocre size leg kick. Oh, it's, man. It's okay. Not an open stance. It, it's getting there, though. It'll get there. What uh, you mentioned Netflix? You binge watching anything good? What's on the What's on the Royce Lewis must watch list? All Americans a good one. Uh, I'm, I'm getting some people, some of my friends on that for sure. Uh, you know, my mom actually put me on that a while ago when it first mm-hmm. came out when it was live, and 
uh, season two just came out, so that's a good one to watch. Uh, that's what I'm watching right now. Yeah, I'm watching that with my son, Zeev, so uh, he's re-watching because he, he blew through it already, and uh, <laughs> now he's like, now we need to watch season two because I had watched season one. It is, that's a pretty good show. Yeah, um, good show. All right, what about, uh, what about your cooking skills? Like, where are they at now? Do you feel like you're trying new things because you're, you're sitting at home and, and have the time to try things out? Uh, so I was blessed enough to, you know, my mom and dad are very good cooks themselves. And, you know, my dad could potentially be a chef at a restaurant, you know, if he wanted to. But he decided to go the sommelier route, mix it up on him. Uh, but, no, he's he taught me a lot, and so did my mom. And I call him, you know, quite a bit when I first moved out here last this offseason and uh, learned how to just cook on my own. And so now I'm doing my thing. I would say out of a 10, I'm probably like a six or seven out of That's 10. That's pretty good. It's pretty good, man. 20, you know, just give me a couple more years, might be up to a, you know, eight or nine. So we'll say like, if we're going to do a 20 to 80 scouting scale, maybe you're like, right now you're like a, a 50, like major league average, but you're a future like 70. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good. That's a good. Is that fair. It's uh, a great rating. Yeah, it's a really I don't like blow, I don't like blowing up the scouting grades. We try to be realistic here. <laughs> All right, so we want to we want to make sure that we get it right now. I would imagine now you're not old enough to officially pair wines with your food, but because of what your dad did, I would imagine that you probably have a good sense of what goes well with what. So maybe once you turn 21, we can do this again and we can talk about wine pairings. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, we're gonna go to Napa for uh, to celebrate both of our birthdays. And, uh, you know, he's going to, you know, teach me a lot about wine up there and uh, maybe go up to Paso Robles as well and uh, just continue to learn about it. But I, I picked up a few things here and there. All right, what's your go-to dish to cook right now without the wine, obviously? Yeah, without the wine, no doubt uh, it'd be the chicken Alfredo pasta. Uh, I kill some Alfredo sauce and, um, you know, I have a fun time doing it. It takes about, you know, 20 minutes and it's just an easy dish. All right, so if people want the recipe, maybe they can hit you up on, on Instagram or whatever, and you can, are you willing to share the recipe, or is it like a secret thing? Yeah. Like, no, it's pretty basic, very basic. I'll share it, no doubt. All right, sounds good. Well, Rice, uh, good luck to you. Thank you for taking some, some time out. Hopefully the next time we talk, we'll, we'll be on a baseball field somewhere where we've gotten back to some sense of normalcy. Yeah, God will. Appreciate it. All right, thanks, Rice. Thank you. So thanks, everybody, for joining us again, and we will be back next week for uh, another edition of the Pipeline Podcast.